Welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast today. And we talk a lot about training and diet and things that you can do to optimize your fitness goals and just life in general. But today, the topic is really something that if you optimize this, then you can take massive steps towards optimizing your life in general and living a better life. And my guest is Dr. Greg Potter, who is a PhD from the University of Leeds, and he is also a researcher in the topic of sleep and chronobiology. And he's an expert on the topic in general. So I'm really looking forward to be talking with him. And he is not only an expert, but from listening to other podcasts with him, he seems like a very thoughtful individual and just a cool person to talk to. So Greg, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to be here. And thank you for the warm introduction. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I want to do in today's discussion is make it practical in the sense that, you know, I have a general beef with the fitness industry when it comes to the topic of sleep. You know, there are a lot of articles and videos and infographics being made on the on the sleep topic. And I would say about 80% of them is only discussing the negative things that are going to happen if you don't sleep enough. Like your muscles are going to fall off, you're going to get fat, your brain is not going to work well. Like everything is just going to be a disaster. And there is surprisingly little attention is is put on actually discussing how to sleep better. Mm. So I don't want to be focusing too much on the problem in today's uh, interview and focus more on what we can do to make things better. Uh, how does that sound? That sounds good. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I recall writing an article for an online magazine in inverted commas about six years ago. It was about sleep. And back then, they just weren't interested in it. They had accepted some of my other articles. And now in 2019, all of a sudden, sleep is a hot topic, which is, of course, something that I'm very happy about. But yeah, I agree also that many people frame sleep in terms of the negative consequences of sleep disruption. And most people focus on sleep loss specifically. And I think that something that commonly happens is that people who speak about sleep, who often have great expertise in sleep, will focus on sleep loss. And because the way that they discuss sleep loss rings true with the audience and they get murmurs of agreement from the audience, what they end up focusing on more and more is sleep loss. And that can be a problem because the reality is that people have sleep difficulties for numerous different reasons. And for that reason, while the core tenets of sleep hygiene are common to everybody. People's sleep difficulties arise from a multitude of different factors. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a sensitive topic to me because, you know, I, I always got, get a bit upset when people discuss sleep as if it was just a thing to cross off from your to-do list. It's like, I don't get why people don't get nine hours of sleep. And it's like, well, because I freaking can't. Like, <laughs> do, you, do you think it's fun for me to pop up three hours before my alarm? Like, God damn it. But um, on, a, on a more serious note, uh, not that this wasn't serious, you, you must be seeing this a lot with other people too. Like for myself, and I think for a lot of other people, there is a lot of things that go into optimizing sleep. And it's, it's a big challenge. It's not merely a matter of just going to bed on time and not drinking Red Bulls before bed. It's, it's a lot of things that can go on during the day, a lot of things to optimize. And then, of course, that can go too far sometimes. Like you can get too focused on optimizing things. That can create stress by itself. Then that can mess with your sleep. So you must be seeing this a lot in your research. Yeah, and I suppose there are many ways that you can divide the sources of these sleep difficulties. So sometimes it's daytime factors, sometimes it's variables around the sleep period itself. Sometimes these problems are the result of people's behaviors, but sometimes they result from cognitions. And for those reasons, the onus really is on identifying your unique sources of sleep difficulties. And of course, there's only so much ground that we can cover in a conversation such as this. But hopefully, some of the things that we touch on are things that people can put to use. I'll try and keep my responses as practical as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like we mentioned, we will make this practical, but just a tiny bit of theorizing for the beginning. Mm. In, in a general sense, like why do people have such a 
big difficulty sleeping because I think a lot of us when we were kids and teenagers like for many of us the issue was sleeping too much like uh, I remember now I have a lot of challenges with sleep but when I was a teenager I remember having these conversations with my parents like it's like yeah I understand that it's Sunday or Saturday but do you have to sleep until 3 p.m you know like and, and then it all of a sudden flipped in adulthood so what what are some main things that this comes down to one thing just to pick up on there is that what is good sleep does vary over the course of an individual's life and it's perfectly normal to go to bed later and wake up later as a teenager and it's also the norm for young people to need more sleep than adults so sleeping for a long period of time at once was definitely not a problem as a teenager but with that said i understand that it's not necessarily something that's well catered for by society anyway with that said the following question was what are the causes of sleep difficulties and Simplistically, I think of this in evolutionary terms, and I think that this is a useful framework to use for people's health problems in general. But if we consider how our ancestors, our distant ancestors, probably once lived, then they largely lived by two clocks, and I'm using that word clock in inverted commas too, but one of these was the environmental clock, and each day the planet revolves around its axis, which produces the light-dark cycle, and people would have lived by the light-dark cycle back in those days. And of course, it was only during the daytime, really, that people could go out and forage and hunt for food. And then at night, they would have rested and fasted, and they have only been exposed to light from fires, moonlight, and stars. And the other clock that they lived by was their biological clocks, which produced these rhythmic 24-hour changes in various different biological processes and behaviors, the purpose of which is to optimize our bodies according to time of day. And these two clocks would have been aligned back in those times. But now, of course, we live in a 24-7 society. So we have artificial light at night which lets us stay up and it permits things such as shift work too but of course it disrupts our clocks and it disrupts our sleep then we have round the clock food access because of fast food and we also face numerous different stresses in the modern environment specifically chronic low-grade stresses that we wouldn't want to face so the stress that we were exposed to once upon a time was probably intermittent and relatively high whereas now we're always stressing about work and while we don't necessarily have some of the great acute stresses that we once had as would have occurred during skirmishes with rival bands of people for example we do face this chronic low-grade stress and all of this can conspire to lead to sleep problems now one more thing to add is that People are differentially susceptible to suffering from sleep problems as a result of this mismatch. And that differential susceptibility is probably largely the product of differences between people and things such as genetics. So while it's rarely the case that genetic mutations cause sleep problems, although sometimes that does seem to be the case, they can potentiate them. So if you expose two people to the exact same circumstances, which of course has never happened before, but just playing this mental game, then you would expect one person to suffer sleep problems more than the other person in response to these environmental stresses. Yeah, that last point that you mentioned is really remarkable to me, just how big the difference is between people can be. And I always like to bring up the example of myself and my girlfriend, like, because like I mentioned, if I do most of the things that we will discuss in this this talk properly, then I can count on getting okay sleep in general and she can just i mean the basically a textbook of how to not do things the way she's living her <laughs> life like napping late in the evening then drinking coffee before bed sleeping and waking up at random times on weekends and she is just a sleeping machine like she can sleep <laughs> anywhere anytime and it is just incredible how varied people are in terms of how easily their sleep gets disrupted right yeah and it's funny that those are your circumstances because that rings true for me as well my sleep is relatively prone to not being very good in response to quite minor stresses, whereas the girl that I'm dating seems to be able to fly to the other side of the planet and then sleep for 14 hours and wake up at the right time <laughs> and do lots of different things which aren't 
ideal on paper but they seem to work absolutely fine for her yeah yeah so um hopefully 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 we will be able to give some guidance to people for whom the situation is not so fortunate but um speaking of good sleep a little bit so obviously the question of how much we should be sleeping always comes up and i think we don't necessarily have to go into that that much because like most people kind of know the answer like seven to nine hours for most people but ideally your body should be able to auto regulate this for you but you know I have these weird distant memories of once upon a time and every once in a blue moon this still happens that I go to bed, eventually I fall asleep and then I go into a blackout, like just transport into a completely different universe and dimension I dream and just completely in a different place and then all of a sudden I wake up and I'm drooling, like pretty gross, but I feel amazing, <laughs> <laughs> looking at my phone and see that it's like eight or nine hours past. Now, that's, mm. I, I would not even call that good sleep. I would call that I'm running to my friends, telling them that, oh my God, guys, something amazing happened to me last night. So You call it a miracle. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my sleep could be much, much worse than that. And I would still call it good sleep by my standards. But is mm. that how that should be ideally, like every night for people to if they really optimize things well in a perfect world <laughs> that would be great but of course people do sleep differently from one another and that is the case from birth so your baseline norm for what constitutes good sleep is different from other people but with that said i think it's useful to think about different dimensions that are associated with sleep health and i'll mention a few different dimensions because these dimensions have been associated with a variety of different health outcomes and they're also things that we can measure and track over time and then if people can start to understand whether these are moving in the right direction or not then hopefully good health will follow and they'll also be able to understand how their behaviors influence these different variables over time too but just add one more thing it's normal also for people's sleep to change over the course of their lives as i touched on earlier so if you think about sleep timing then when we're first born our sleep is quite disorganized infants will sleep relatively sporadically throughout the 24-hour cycle but for long periods of time then as children we go to bed and wake up very early as we progress to the end of adolescence, our sleep gets later and later, such that by the end of adolescence, it's typically at its latest. And we also still sleep for quite a long period of time at that time. And then thereafter, sleep typically gets earlier and earlier over the rest of the lifespan. And sleep duration tends to compress a bit too, such that people over the age of 65 probably sleep slightly less than people from 18 to 65. And also sleep commonly fragments over the course of the life. So Yes, it would be great if we could retain the type of sleep consolidation that you mentioned there. If we could just hit the sack and then uninterrupted sleep for nine hours, wake up the next day feeling fantastic. But it is the norm for people's sleep to start to break mm -hmm. up over the course of the night, over the course of the lifespan. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't focus on trying to do what they can to make sure that doesn't happen, but that is the norm. Now, with that said, to circle back to these dimensions, the five different dimensions that I think it's worth considering are sleep duration, so the total amount that you sleep during the 24-hour period, sleep efficiency, which is really the proportion of time that you spend in bed that you're actually asleep. So if, for example, you spend 10 hours in bed just to use some simple numbers and you only spend six of those hours actually asleep, then your sleep efficiency is 60% or six divided by 10 times 100. And their sleep timing, so the placement of sleep within the 24-hour cycle. Then two other things are more subjective in nature. So one would be alertness during the daytime. And the other would be satisfaction with your sleep or how well you feel you slept each day. Right. Very interesting. Yeah, so we will go into all of this in, in a bit more detail. But to transition into the practical side of things. So can we just first give a... Um, when we talk about doing things to optimize sleep, can we first give like a big picture thing? Like what, what is it in general that we want to achieve with these, these strategies? Um, like, so, cause for example, in the case of diet, we can talk about a lot of things that we can do to lose fat, like what to eat, when to eat, how to eat the food. But in general, the big picture is that we want to create an energy deficit. Like we want to burn more than our body is, is consuming. So when it comes to sleep, like what is that big picture thing that we want to strive for when optimizing things? So 
suppose the key variables really relate to trying to recapitulate those circumstances that I mentioned at the start of the conversation. So if we think about how our ancestors once existed, then we want to try and mimic those conditions in our modern environments, such that during the daytime, we try to avoid undue stress and we're physically active outside, consuming whole foods, spending time with friends and so on. And then at nighttime, we're largely resting and fasting and our nights are dark and we sleep in a, a cool environment as well. And if we do those things, then we'll find that our sleep quality will typically improve, but also the timing will more tightly synchronize with the light-dark cycle. And if we remove things such as stimulant consumption, then often sleep duration will increase too. But to break this further down into a few different categories, one thing that's worth focusing on for most people is, of course, stress and work-related stress specifically seems to be a big problem and a primary cause of some sleep difficulties. So to give people a couple of tips related to this, many people, when they go to bed at night, have a racing mind. They're thinking about what they have to do in the coming days. And if you experience that problem, then a really simple strategy is to get a diary and a pen or a pencil and simply note down everything that you need to get done the following day. And if, for example, you like keeping a gratitude diary, which seems to independently associate with certain health benefits, then this is a prime time to do that too. And then at night, if you keep that diary in the pen by your bedside, then sometimes most of us will wake up with a racing mind once more and we'll think, oh, I, I forgot I need to get that done too tomorrow. And if that's the case, then you can simply quickly make a note of that in your diary. And that particular strategy has been shown to help people fall asleep more quickly, people who have difficulties falling asleep because of having a racing mind, for example. So that's one strategy for handling a racing mind. Another common cause of sleep difficulties is having negative thoughts about sleep. And you touched on this at the start of the conversation. People, specifically people who have insomnia, will often think, well, if I don't sleep well tonight, then I'm going to be crippled tomorrow and my workplace performance is really going to suffer. And the primary way of helping people who have insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And focusing on sleep-related thoughts is really important to this. So challenging those thoughts can be a constructive process for certain people. And that can entail something, something simple such as keeping... A diary again and during the daytime as negative sleep related thoughts pop up the person would simply note what the thought is and challenge whether that thought is actually true and then try to reframe that thought more positively and the evidence for the efficacy of this is mixed but some people do find it very useful something else that people who have insomnia or difficulty sleeping struggle with is associating their beds with wakeful activities and the problem is that if they sleep poorly at night then their daytime performance is impaired so maybe they try to nap at lunchtime to make up for this impairment and maybe at night they spend more time in bed hoping that if they go to bed earlier and stay in bed longer then they'll spend a greater proportion of their time in bed asleep or at least sleep more in total but the problem is that their brains start to associate their beds with wakeful activities. And this is known as stimulus control of behavior. So the stimulus in this instance is the bed and the behavior is wakefulness. So for these people, it's really important to save the bed for sex and sleep only. And if they wake up during the night, so if you able, for example, have these periods of time where you wake up for an hour at a time in the middle of the night, it'll be really useful for you to actually leave your bedroom and do something relaxing and somewhat boring in another room until you are very sleepy again. And an example of that might be reading a book in dim lighting. For example, if you meditate, that would be a prime time to meditate. You could listen to a podcast if you liked, but the important thing is to only go to bed when you are very sleepy. And of course, it doesn't need to be exactly 15 minutes, but roughly 15 minutes will do. And then just to move on quickly to some of the different behaviors, you mentioned diet there. So consuming too much too late in the day will tend to disrupt sleep. And 
as a rule of thumb, I generally suggest that people stop consuming anything that contains calories at least two hours before bedtime. The composition of your diet is important too, of course, and stimulants and caffeine specifically are a big issue for lots of people. How our bodies respond to caffeine is very dependent on whom we are speaking about. So it might be that you, for example, detoxify caffeine very rapidly. So you can consume quite large amounts of caffeine relatively late in your day and your sleep won't be that negatively affected by doing so. Whereas I might find that if I consume even small amounts of caffeine early in the day, then I take longer to fall asleep. My sleep breaks up during the night. The deeper stage of sleep is shorter and less intense. And then the next day I feel like my performance is impaired. So as a rule of thumb, I generally suggest that people stop consuming caffeine at least nine hours before their planned bedtime. And if you consume other stimulants, then bear that in mind too. So maybe you have ADHD and you take Ritalin for that, for example. In that instance, you would want to take that early in your day because it is a potent stimulant. And the quantity of these stimulants is important, of course. So for caffeine, I generally suggest caffeine, capping intake at up to two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass per day. And to figure out how much caffeine you consume, there's a website named caffeineinformer.com that you can go to to approximate your caffeine consumption. And then if we focus on the bedroom itself, then temperature is important. If you're lucky enough to have air conditioning, then you probably want to set temperature to roughly 18 degrees Celsius at night, maybe in the 17 to 19 degrees Celsius range. If you don't have air conditioning, then opening the window will sometimes do the trick. If it doesn't do the trick, then you can try using a fan and aiming it at your torso. If that still doesn't do the trick, then you could try not sleeping with a duvet, but just sleeping with a duvet cover. That's something that I personally do in the summer right now in the UK. Contrary to all expectations, it's actually very hot. So I'm just sleeping under a duvet cover right now. And then... Other things would be adjusting your lighting environment around the sleep period. So I mentioned earlier that we once spent lots of time outside during the daytime, and that's still important now. People who expose themselves to more daytime light tend to report better sleep quality because when you get more high-intensity light during the day, that exposure will buffer against the negative consequence of exposure to small amounts of light at night. So daytime light is important and try and spend at least half an hour outdoors each day during daylight. But then at night, in the two hours or so before you plan to go to bed, you want to try and systematically reduce your exposure to light and high-intensity blue wavelengths of light specifically and the light doesn't have to be blue to contain that particular type of light. It can be full spectrum white light too, but ways of doing that would be dimming the lights or turning off some lights, or you could wear blue blocking glasses if you want to try them out. You could also use various different software on your devices. So F.Lux for your computer, for example, night shift mode for iPhones or Twilight or Iris for Android phones. Iris is available for iPhones as well, I believe. So that's important too, and then ensuring that your bedroom itself is dark. So that might entail using a blackout blind. It might entail removing sources of artificial light from your bedroom that you can do away with, such as alarm clocks. If you use an alarm clock, then you might find that you benefit from using a sunrise alarm clock as opposed to being awoken in a more jarring way each day by an alarm that emits a noise and then hitting snooze, which is something that you should always try and avoid if possible. So those things are key. And then one more thing that commonly disrupts sleep is exposure to loud noises. So if you live by a busy road, for example, and you occasionally get somebody who walks past your flat drunk, which is certainly something that I've experienced many times in my life, then you may benefit from something like earplugs or if you use a fan that should serve that purpose or you could try a white noise machine as well. Some people have difficulty with earplugs because they feel like it makes them more aware of the noises from their own bodies. Maybe they can hear their hearts more loudly, for example, or maybe they can hear their breathing more. And as one final tip, since I'm just on this enormous monologue, if that's the case and you feel very attuned to your internal bodily sensations, 
then a very useful strategy is visualization. And this is something you want to practice during the daytime, but the idea is to try and as vividly as possible imagine a relaxing place. So maybe that's you in a meadow with somebody that you love in the middle of the summer, for example, and you can feel the wind on your skin and think carefully about what you can see and the sounds that you can hear and maybe what you can taste. But the idea is to make the experience as clear as possible in your mind. And then during those nights when you can't sleep, you can draw on that particular scene and that will take you away from the sound of your pounding heart. So those are lots of different things, but just to circle back to the general heuristic, think about how our distant ancestors once would have lived and think about how you can mimic that environment within the context of our modern lives. Yeah, no, that was that was an incredible monologue. And uh, it's funny because I had a lot of things written down that I wanted to address, and he pretty much addressed them in reverse order. <laughs> so I, I want to pick apart some of the things that you just mentioned here in reverse order mm. again. So you kind of finished with light, or that was one of the last things you mentioned. So I would have a couple of questions on that. So we understand that you should be exposed to a lot of light during the day and then not so much at night. So um, obviously for a lot of people, it's it can be a challenge to get enough sunlight uh, during the daytime. Now, would it... What what happens when sunlight comes through the windows, and uh, does it actually work if someone just opens the window in the summertime, for example, when it's not too cold, and just lets the sunlight come into the room that way? Does that count almost as much as actually being outside, or you really have to spend enough time outdoors? It's a very good question, and I haven't looked closely at this literature recently, but what I will say is that first, the intensity of the light that you're exposed to indoors is typically much lower than what you would get outdoors during daylight. So a typical relatively well-lit room might have a light intensity of about 500 lux, whereas outdoors on a sunny day at midday, if it's cloudless, you might experience light intensity, which is about 300 times that. But with that said, if you are sat by the window, then especially if the light is, if the sun is on the same side as the window, then you, you may well be exposed to a substantially higher light intensity than that. And there has been some work looking at people who work in offices and where they're placed relative to the windows in those offices. And people who sit closer to windows do tend to report having higher subjective sleep quality at night. So I think it makes perfect sense that if you're near the window, then you will get slightly more light exposure. And there's reason to think that that might well help your sleep. So often people simply can't get outside during the day. Maybe you work in the city as a banker, for example. And at the moment with your current work schedule, it's just not feasible for you to get outside. You're working around the clock. If that's the case and you can sit by the window, then I would say absolutely try and do that and maybe keep the window open too because there's a little bit of evidence that air quality might influence sleep as well. And there's been some very interesting work recently looking at particulate matter. So... concentrations of nasty things in the air and how exposure to that matter associates with risk of various different health outcomes including all-cause mortality and study that was just published in the new england journal of medicine found that greater exposure to certain sizes of particulate matter does associate with a higher risk of dying from any cause so that's a tangent and i don't want to sound like i'm fear-mongering but air quality is important too and there's a little bit of relatively weak evidence suggesting that it might affect sleep as well hey guys just a second are you enjoying this podcast if so i'd really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the sustainable self-development podcast on itunes that will help me to grow this podcast rank higher on the platform and get more high quality guests over time which is a win-win for everybody so if you could do this little bit of favor for me i'll owe you one Thanks a lot, guys, and let's continue. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned that it's good to be outside for at least half an hour during the daytime. Do you think it matters whether that half an hour or more is in one bolus at, at one point, or it, it's does is it important to get it in like more gradually and like distributed basically over the course of the day? So, for example, what I used to have is I would walk to an office, and that would be like a half an hour walk. 
um, or even more, but then I would be in, indoors basically the whole day. And then again, I would get out at like 5 p.m. or something. So is that um, inferior to, for example, potentially even going to work by car and then every half an hour, every hour going out to the nearest balcony and just being outside for one or two minutes and then going back and rinse, rinse repeating that a lot of times during the day? Very good question. And I'll try and keep my answer relatively brief. Of course, it depends as always. And one of the factors that it depends on is the timing of your sleep. So if, for example, you find yourself going to bed later than you would like, and as a result, you have to wake up to an alarm clock in the morning to be on time for work, then you probably want to try and shift your sleep earlier in the day. And that would entail things like restricting your caffeine intake and perhaps changing the time of your caffeine intake so that you're consuming less caffeine and earlier in the day. It might also entail doing any exercise that you do earlier in the day if your focus is on shifting the timing of your sleep. But then most important, perhaps, it would entail focusing on changing your patterns of exposure to light such that you're being exposed to more of that type of high-intensity light that contains blue wavelength light relatively early in your day, specifically within a couple of hours of waking up in the morning, if possible. And the converse situation is somebody, perhaps a very elderly person who finds himself or her, herself feeling very sleepy in the late afternoon and wanting to go to bed very early and then waking up very early in the morning, perhaps at 3 or 4 a.m. and wanting to shift sleep later. In that case, it makes more sense for that person to do any physical activity within the four hours or so of going to bed bed in the evening and then also increasing exposure to that type of light high intensity blue containing light in the perhaps two to four hours before bedtime now with that said if the timing of your sleep is not something that you're too concerned about and you just want to gain some of the benefits of exposure to light and light doesn't just affect our our biological rhythms. So I mentioned there that the time at which we're exposed to light can shift our body's clocks and therefore the timing at which we sleep. Light has a variety of other non-image forming functions too. So people know about its roles in vitamin D synthesis, for example. It also seems to affect cognitive performance. So if you're putting a premium on how well you perform at work, for instance, then it's important you expose yourself to lots of bright light during the day. And it will affect things like memory too. And then specific wavelengths of light will also have some other effects on things such as mitochondrial function. And there's a little bit of not very strong evidence that exposure to light could have direct effects on fat metabolism too, and perhaps some other aspects of metabolic regulation. Now, with all of that said, let's say that the timing of your sleep is not something you want to shift. You just want to get enough exposure to light during the day. Is it better to consolidate that in one bout of 30 minutes, for example, or to split those 30 minutes into a number of different exposures? It's probably not really something to be worried about. But with that said, something that I'm sure that you know all about, Abel, is interspersing regular physical activity during the day seems to be better for certain aspects of metabolic regulation than doing all of that physical activity in one bout. So I would probably rather have somebody go and take a quick walk outside, let's say it's six, five minute walks during the day in between meals, than have them take all of those 30 minutes of physical activity outdoors at once mm. as one bout, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's very interesting. Um, we will get on to exercise in a minute. Uh, one last question I have on, on light is, what what are your thoughts on these blue light blocking glasses? Because they like everybody was very optimistic about them at one point, and now recently there was some doubt whether they're really doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, what have you seen with regards to those? I don't think they will ever hurt, really, and I think that there might be small benefits to be had from using them. So, some of the studies that have carefully controlled various different variables and looked at the effects of using these blue blockers on things like exposure to light from tablets shortly before sleep have shown that if people wear these types of glasses, then they may be able to fall asleep faster. And the 
light might less negatively affect their biological rhythm such that it doesn't influence melatonin synthesis as much. And melatonin is a hormone that's produced in the brain, which basically signals to the cells in our bodies that it's the nighttime and therefore to engage in nighttime activity. So it has some roles in sleep regulation too. But those studies generally enforced exposure to very small amounts of light during the daytime, during the period of hours running up to the exposure to light emitted from those devices. And as I mentioned earlier, our light exposure history will strongly affect how our bodies respond to exposure to relatively small amounts of light at night. So I think that for people who are spending lots of time outdoors during the daylight, using an iPad in the 19 minutes before bedtime is probably not something to be too concerned about, providing that you're not watching anything that's too riveting at that time. And as I mentioned earlier, if you use some of those different software tools like F.Lux to pull the blue light out of your screen, then that will likely help too. But the intensity of the light that's emitted from those devices is important as well. So you want to always dim the brightness settings if you can. Now, with all of that said, I, I think there are certain instances when using blue blocking glasses is definitely useful. And this is how I use them myself. I use them during jet lag. And what you find is that because our bodies respond to light so differently according to the time of day at which we're exposed to light, it's really important to optimize patterns of light exposure during overcoming jet lag so that you can synchronize your body's clocks to the new time zone as quickly as possible. And there's a great free website called Jetlag Rooster, which will give you guidance on the times at which you should expose yourself to light and avoid light according to the specifics of your travel or your jet lag in inducing travel specifically. And if you're awake at times at which it's advantageous for you to avoid light, then put your blue blocking glasses on. And beyond that, the main application of them that I think is useful is somebody who's trying to shift the timing of their sleep. I mentioned earlier the example of the elderly person who's trying to go to bed later, fall asleep later and wake up later. For that person, if they're indoors early in the day, then it might make sense to use blue blocking glasses. Obviously not if it interferes with their vision and all of a sudden they find themselves falling over objects that are scattered around the house. But otherwise, that does make sense. And then one final comment is that we differ massively between ourselves and how sensitive our bodies are to exposure to light. And if we focus on melatonin synthesis specifically, then there's been some work published this year by Sean Kane's group at Monash, which looked at the effects of ecologically valid, so levels of light exposure that are relevant to us in our daily lives, and how that light exposure affects synthesis of this hormone melatonin. And what they found was that if you compare the response of the person who was least sensitive to the melatonin suppressing effects of light at night to the response of the person who is most sensitive, then there's about a 60-fold difference between people. So for some people, it's really important to be meticulous about light exposure in the same way that for some people, it's really important to be very careful about their caffeine consumption. Whereas for others, it's likely to have less of a bearing on the timing of their sleep and perhaps the quality of their sleep too. So just to sum up, I would say Save blue blocking glasses for when you're trying to shift your sleep. For most people, that's most germane to overcoming jet lag. But also, if you have one of these relatively rare sleep phenotypes, such that you either sleep very early or sleep very late, then that's definitely a circumstance in which I think that they can be useful. Absolutely. Thank you. That was very, very elaborate and uh, very insightful. Um, so you mentioned caffeine just now. And... I'm wondering about, so I've heard you speak about this and uh, I think it's fairly well known that the half-life of caffeine is roughly five or six hours. Does that work in a linear fashion? So does it mean that in 10 hours you clear out roughly three quarters of it and then in whatever, 20 hours, it's one eighth. So how does that work? Very good question. And I haven't looked closely at the pharmacokinetic curves of caffeine in recent times. So I can only speculate about that. I have heard people say that if the half-life of caffeine is about six hours, then the quarter life is about 12 hours. And just to make that explicit for the listeners who are less familiar with this, the half-life is the amount of time that it takes 
for the peak concentration of caffeine in your blood after caffeine consumption to come down to 50% of those levels. So if you consume caffeine and it reaches a peak, let's say 45 minutes later, then after six hours, perhaps that's down to 50% of that peak. So that's the half-life. And then after 12 hours, perhaps that's down to 25% of the peak level. But it probably does depend on a variety of different things too, because I'm sure you know this, Abel, but things like the foods that we consume will influence how our bodies absorb, distribute, and metabolize and excrete some of these different xenobiotic compounds like caffeine. So you might find, for example, that if you consume caffeine on an empty stomach early in the day, let's say you have a cup of coffee, then initially the caffeine is metabolized relatively quick, quickly. Whereas if an hour later you consume a food that contains lots of fat and lots of protein and lots of fiber, then maybe that's going to affect how the caffeine that you consumed previously is eliminated, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, speaking of exercise, which you also mentioned uh, shortly before, um, I've heard different theories about uh, the timing of exercise. So I I've seen people referencing research that showed that early, earlier in the day, like morning exercise or especially like more strenuous, like resistance training, working out type thing is, is more beneficial. I seen other studies being referenced where later workouts were beneficial for sleep quality. And I've also just generally seen it being mentioned that it kind of just doesn't matter. Exercise period is just good for sleep quality. Uh, what is your stance on, on that? Again, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it always depends. I feel like such a broken record at times, but it depends on what you're optimizing specifically. Of course, it depends on you as an individual, but if, if we focus on sleep optimization specifically, then there was a systematic review that was published relatively recently, which looked at the effects of late exercise on sleep quality, and it didn't seem to affect sleep that much. But with that said, if you look at the individual studies, then the studies that entailed higher intensity exercise, closer to sleep, if anything, did seem to affect sleep such that, for example, it took people longer to fall asleep. Now, with that said, in general, I think that the evidence shows that doing regular exercise, especially if you're somebody who doesn't already do that much exercise, will tend to help you fall asleep faster. It will tend to make you sleep slightly longer. Your sleep will be slightly more efficient. And you also feel like you slept slightly better too. So in general, going from not doing much physical activity to doing a moderate amount of physical activity does seem to be good for sleep. If we think about athletes, though, then if you're somebody who regularly tests the limits of your capacity to recover from exercise and you periodically go into so-called overreaching or overtraining, then one of the common symptoms of that is deterioration in sleep. People often wake up at night and all of a sudden they experience some of the negative consequences of poor sleep as well. And in that instance, it's going to be a question of doing everything that you can to help you adapt to that training and recover from it and if you can't adjust your training loads that's really all you can focus on but if you can adjust your training loads then you can always dial them down if you're trying to improve your sleep but to go back to the idea that it depends on what you're optimizing if we look at exercise performance for example then time of day is a consideration. If you're an endurance athlete, then the time at which you exercise doesn't seem to have very clear effects on exercise performance acutely. But if you're a strength and power athlete, then you generally find that strength and power are at their highest relatively late in the biological afternoon, which might be around 5 p.m. for most people when core body temperature is at its highest too, because when your body is warmer, the enzymes that are involved in metabolizing various different substrates that are important to providing energy during that type of exercise will work better. They will work faster. The fluid in your joints that maintains the joint range of motion that's necessary to being able to move freely tends to be less viscous when your body temperature is higher. And also, your nerves will transmit signals to your muscles slightly more quickly when your body temperature is higher, nerve conduction velocity is higher. So with all of that said, if you're a strength power athlete and you're trying to 
be at your best, then you probably want to do exercise at that time of day. Whether that influences how you adapt to training in the long term isn't that clear, but there's a man named Hekinen who has done various different studies looking at this question. And if anything, doing strength and power exercise in the afternoon seems to lead to slightly greater magnitudes of adaptation to doing it in the morning. And then one more thing to touch on is the types of benefits you're trying to get from exercise. So let's say, for example, that you're somebody who has diabetes or pre-diabetes and you're trying to improve your blood sugar regulation. If that's the case, then there's been some work published by researchers at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm recently, which looked at the effect of either doing high-intensity intermittent training as cycling exercise early in the day or doing it in the afternoon. And what they found, perhaps counterintuitively, is that when people do that type of exercise early in the day, their blood sugar regulation actually tends to be slightly worse afterwards, although after repeating those sessions they found that people's blood sugar responses tended to move back down towards baseline. Whereas people who did that type of exercise in the afternoon did experience the improvements in blood sugar regulation that you would expect to see from that type of high-intensity intermittent training. So to sum up, I think it makes sense if you're focusing on your sleep to limit any high intensity and or high load exercise in the four hours or so before you go to bed. And it's important to, of course, recognize that you don't exercise in isolation. If, for example, you go to the gym, then you'll also be in a place with lots of bright nights, lights and loud noises and so on. And those things will affect your sleep. If you're doing more moderate exercise, then you can probably do that up to the two hours or so before you plan to go to bed without it negatively affecting your sleep. And if you're an athlete and you're trying to optimize your endurance performance, it probably doesn't matter too much. If you're a strength and power athlete trying to optimize your performance in the relevant discipline, then placing your exercise in the biological afternoon probably makes a lot of sense if that's something that your schedule will permit. And then if you are experiencing metabolic dysregulation and you want to experience the benefits of doing relatively high intensity training, then based on the evidence so far, it seems that doing that in the afternoon makes sense. And then the final thing I mentioned, sorry, just while I'm on this ramble, is that like light exposure, the times at which we do exercise does seem to affect our body's clocks too. And this is something that hasn't been studied very thoroughly yet, but there was a very nice study that's published on this subject this year. And what they did was they looked at the effects of exercise done at different times of day, and they found that people experienced advances in the timing of their body's clocks, i.e. they would have wanted to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. If people did exercise, and this was treadmill exercise, between about 7am and 10am in the morning, or about 1pm, 4pm in the afternoon, whereas if they did the same exercise between about 7pm and 10pm, i.e. within a few hours of bedtime, then they found that the exercise delayed the time of the body's clock such that people would have wanted to go to bed later and fall asleep later. So if you are experiencing jet lag at the moment and you try that jet lag rooster app, then if you look at the times at which it says you should expose yourself to lots of light exposure right now, it seems that that's also probably a time at which you'd want to exercise to expedite your body's resynchronization with the new time zone. And one way by which exercise may affect the timing of the body's clock is by actually increasing sensitivity to the effects of light exposure on its timing. So another stupidly long answer, but that's that. No, it was very insightful. A lot of of things that um, I didn't expect to come out of it. And yeah, that was great. So um, something that closely follows the topic of uh, exercise is food. So one thing that I've often heard and and recommended to people is to have their meals more or less at the same time every day because that's also a powerful circadian input. Uh, What's what's the deal with food intake? Yeah, so (laughs) another very, very big subject. But regarding the regularity of diet, it does seem to be that having regular meal times is good for metabolic health. So there's been some nice research by scientists at the University of Nottingham in England on this over the years, a man named Ian MacDonald. And as one example of this, there was a study of healthy young women. And for two weeks, they consumed either a fixed number of meals each day, so six meals, or they consumed the exact same composition of 
the diet, but distributed into a varying number of meals, so three to nine meals each day, such that on average they had the same number of meals, but their meal patterns were less regular. And what they found was that at the end of the two weeks, that regular condition led to improvements in things like blood sugar regulation, and people also reported more even appetite regulation, and they tended to burn more calories in response to those meals too. If we park that, then something that you alluded to is that diet timing is relevant to our body's clocks. And whereas our patterns of exposure to light and dark seem to be the primary determinant of the timing of the master clock in the brain, which predominantly influences the timing of our sleep, our patterns of feeding and fasting are probably most important to setting the timing of various different other clocks or peripheral clocks in our bodies. And there have been very carefully done experiments in other animals that have shown that if you switch the timing of food availability by 12 hours each day, then within a relatively short period of time, the timing of gene expression in various different other tissues in the body, such as the liver, will move in lockstep with those changes in diet timing, such that you can <coughs> uncouple the timing of these peripheral clocks from that central clock in the brain. And there's been some work more recently in humans showing that Changes in meal timing will also shift the timing of gene expression in lockstep with those changes, although not to the same magnitude. So it's not as if if you delay your meals by five hours each day, then the timing of gene expression in tissue such as adipocytes or fat cells will move by five hours. It probably won't move by that much necessarily, but it will budge a bit. But again, the timing of the clock in the brain or the master clock in the brain specifically will probably not move so much. So what practical implications does this have? <clears throat> One implication is that if you are undergoing jet lag, then the first day in the new time zone, the first full 24-hour day after you wake up, you want to fully shift your meal times to the new time zone. And before that, it might make sense to do a fast because the quality of plain food is generally pretty terrible, but also because if you go that period of time without consuming food, then you'll probably flatten some of the rhythms in those peripheral tissue clocks, such that when you then add a stimulus, it will have a more pronounced effect on shifting the timing of those clocks such that they synchronize more quickly with your new environment. One more thing that I could touch on here, and I, I don't know how much depth you want me to go into on this because it's a, it's a strong interest of mine, is this concept of time-restricted eating. And that is the idea that we may benefit from restricting the period in which we consume our calories each day to a period of 12 hours or less. And there have been many studies that have addressed this over the years. Most of these initially were done on other animals, on mice specifically. And in the last few years, we've seen more and more studies and carefully controlled experimental interventions on humans. And to summarize these relatively briefly, there were some nice studies initially looking at the effects of skipping breakfast, which generally will lead to time-restricted eating. And what they found was that, if anything, people who skip breakfast consume fewer calories, but they also tend to burn fewer calories, such that over the course of the day, energy balance, which is the main determinant of changes in body mass, is scarcely affected. And if anything, skipping breakfast seem to increase blood sugar variability in the afternoon among lean people and also worsen insulin sensitivity in the afternoon among obese people. So if anything, skipping breakfast for metabolic health doesn't seem to be advantageous. Possibly there'd be some benefits for circadian rhythms. And maybe if, for example, you have digestive problems, then you would find that beneficial because you're giving your gut a break at regular times each day. But then more recently, there have been a few nice studies on early time-restricted eating. So instead of skipping breakfast, you might, for example, skip dinner. And whereas skipping breakfast doesn't seem to lead to very pronounced benefits, the evidence so far, in my opinion, does show that this type of early time-restricted eating does lead to a host of different benefits. And the first of these studies was done last year by Courtney Peterson. And she found that if you compare spreading out three meals over 12 hours each day for five weeks to having those same three meals in a six-hour period that finishes by 3 p.m., then the short early time-restricted eating condition 
will generally lead to better insulin sensitivity, perhaps lower measures of oxidative stress, which is associated with things such as aging, better appetite regulation, and also drop in morning blood pressure. And that study was done on overweight adult men who have prediabetes specifically. And then more recently, her group has published two additional studies looking at shorter term interventions, which broadly reinforced the same findings, but they also looked more closely at things like blood sugar regulation. And in one of these studies, they found that this type of early time restricted eating condition reduced average 24 hour blood sugar levels. And they also looked at the expression of some genes which are implicated in things such as aging. They found relatively mixed results there, but I wouldn't actually read too much into those. And then also another study looked more at appetite and also fat oxidation. And what that study showed was that even though the early time restricted eating condition entailed a longer fast, appetite was actually more stable over the 24-hour period. And it tended to increase fullness and reduce the desire to eat. And they also found, as you might expect, that it increased fat oxidation at certain times of day. And that type of increase in metabolic flexibility might be a good thing for cardiometabolic health. There's been one more study also that's looked more at whether the effects of early time-restricted eating differ from those of later time-restricted eating. And this was done in adults who have prediabetes, and Sachin Panda contributed to this study, and he was the man who did many of the early studies on non-human animals. And what they found was that if you divide these men into two conditions such that everybody goes through the same two conditions, then people who had early time-restricted eating, so consuming all their calories between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., versus late time-restricted eating, so consuming all of them between 12 p.m. and 9 p.m., did tend to have lower fasting blood sugar levels, but otherwise both groups did experience some benefits. So to summarize, I think that it's useful for most people to consume fewer calories or a smaller proportion of their daily energy intakes late in the day. Skipping dinner is not practical for many people, but if you can just make your dinner smaller, then that's likely to benefit your metabolic health and your sleep too. I haven't touched on the sleep data, but there is evidence showing that that seems to be the case. And otherwise, we need to find out whether differences in things like the caloric period do influence people's responses to time restriction. And right now, there's a small number of studies that have directly addressed this question. And the studies so far have looked at groups such as adult men who have prediabetes, but we need to look at more groups of people because it's likely that some of those different variables will modify the effects of time restriction. But meal regularity is key. Consuming a large proportion of your calories relatively early in the day seems to be important. And then if anything, it seems that using a a relatively short caloric period that finishes plenty of time before bedtime as a a rule of thumb I mentioned earlier at least two hours but I think that there are probably benefits to finishing earlier still unless for example you are an off-season bodybuilder who's trying to gain as much lean body mass as possible then that's probably going to be advantageous for you even then it should be possible (laughs) yeah possibly (laughs) yeah yeah um, so th- that was that was an incredible answer, and uh, we will wrap up uh, very shortly. Just one one last thing that I just definitely want to touch on is something I heard you mention mm-hmm. in another interview, and that is sleep time restriction as a way of uh, alleviating sleep issues. And that is very interesting because earlier on, my kind of go to strategy for improving my sleep or making sure that I'm getting enough sleep is that I would give myself a sleep time buffer. Mm-hmm. So if I needed eight hours of sleep, I would allow myself to be in bed for ten hours. But this suggests kind of the opposite that, well, if you're going to pop up after six hours, then only allow yourself six hours in bed. And over time, you will get more efficient at sleeping and then you can extend it again. Um, Would you touch on this? Sure. This is most commonly used in treating people who have insomnia and it's known as sleep or bedtime restriction therapy. And if you are in that particular circumstance that you experience where maybe you fall asleep fine, but you wake regularly for extended periods during the nighttime, then you 
the first thing that you want to focus on is starting to improve your sleep efficiency and you will feel like you slept better. And then over time, you can start to worry about how long you're sleeping. So what this bedtime restriction therapy entails is having somebody track their sleep, typically for a period of a couple of weeks, so that they can understand their baseline sleep. And maybe after that period of time, you find out that you're going to bed at 10 p.m. and you're in bed until 8 a.m. So you have a 10-hour sleep opportunity, but you're only asleep six hours of those, so 60% of the time. So your sleep is very inefficient. And as a rule of thumb, sleep efficiency is 85% or higher in people who have healthy sleep. So in that particular example, the person might benefit from restricting their time in bed, not their sleep, their time in bed to six hours each evening. And that would typically be enforced by delaying bedtime such that the time which they get out of bed is the same. So if they started with a 10 a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleep opportunity, then sorry, 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. sleep opportunity, then during this bedtime restriction, they might shift that such that they're going to bed at 2 a.m. and getting out of bed at 8 a.m. So now they've got six hours sleep opportunity and the first few days will suck. They will be really hard and people will think, oh, I've got all this extra time in my hands, what am I going to do? They'll probably feel more sleepy during the daytime initially, but very quickly what they'll find, and I mean very quickly, is that the quality of their sleep improves dramatically because they built up so much pressure to sleep during daytime because the longer that somebody's been awake the greater pressure there is to sleep which is completely intuitive i know it's a really obvious thing to say what they'll find is that increased pressure to sleep helps them fall asleep faster and then stay asleep once they are asleep and as they continue to track their sleep when this is done with supervision what normally proceeds is that if the person sleeps with a sleep efficiency of at least 85 percent for a week on the trot then the person will shift their bedtime, so the time at which they try and fall asleep, 15 minutes earlier. So now they're going to bed at 1.45 a.m. Then if after another week, sleep efficiency is at least 85%, bedtime will move 15 minutes earlier again. And that cycle will repeat itself until the person feels like he or she is getting as much time in bed and as much sleep as he or she needs. So hopefully at the end of that period of time, the person is maybe going to bed at midnight and they're waking up at 8 a.m., and their sleep is 90% efficient. So that is a, a quick summary of, of how that works. Typically, it's done using supervision. Online cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia programs will guide people through it. There's one named Sleepio, which is probably the best option out there. Certainly, I think that it has the strongest scientific evidence in its support. I've actually been through the program myself, and I found it really useful because I had sleep maintenance insomnia earlier this year. And then one other thing that I'll just mention quickly is there's a type of <coughs> sleep restriction therapy named intensive sleep restriction therapy, which is normally used to help people who have sleep onset insomnia. So these are people who struggle to fall asleep initially, but then maybe once they're asleep, they can stay asleep fine. And what this normally entails is either completely depriving somebody of sleep or dramatically restricting their sleep for the first night, such that by the following night, they're very sleepy. And then these people will come into sleep clinic and what they'll do is around the time of their habitual bedtime, maybe a bit earlier, they will practice falling asleep. And if they fall asleep, then they get woken up within three minutes of doing so. So they repeat these 30 minute cycles during the first 20 minutes of these cycles, they have the opportunity to fall asleep. If they fall asleep, they get woken up within three minutes of falling asleep. Then at the next 30 minute cycle, they try to fall asleep again. And this goes on for the next 24 hours or so, such that during that time, they have about 50 opportunities to practice falling asleep. So it's like massed practice to the nth degree. And the results are very impressive. There haven't been many studies that have looked at it so far, but the studies that have been done have showed that people will fall asleep dramatically faster, as in more than half an hour faster. They will sleep about 60 minutes longer on average going by self-reports and they'll also feel like they slept better and this is after two days in which they're allowed to catch up on the sleep that they lost not that they would ever fully catch up on that sleep but that those results that i mentioned are for the two weeks following a short period of catch-up sleep so it's not as if that's just the following night or anything like that and when these people are then followed up several weeks later, six weeks later, for example, 
many of these beneficial effects do persist. And this, again, is not something that I would recommend that people try by themselves, but there is a wearable device, which by my reckoning is maybe the one sleep wearable that has the most promise in actually potently helping people improve their sleep. It's named THIM, T-H-I-M, and it guides its users through this process. You wear the ring itself, I think, on the thumb, and it detects when you're falling asleep. And when you fall asleep, it vibrates to wake you up. And it then uses various different materials delivered through an app to guide you through this process. So that's one more type of sleep restriction therapy that I think is enormously promising. But for most people, I would direct them to Sleepio if they are experiencing insomnia and just to actually make it explicit what insomnia is. Insomnia is daytime impairment, first and foremost, plus difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep or difficulty getting enough sleep or feeling like you slept well. That's fascinating. <laughs> that, that, that is amazing. And um yeah, it's we will we will wrap it up here actually. Um, but maybe one some someday we can get a part two because I had a lot of other questions like more stuff about the cognitive cognitive therapies and even things like warm showers, cold showers, evening routines, morning routines, ideal pillow, sleep posture, like a lot of cool questions that I had in mind. But obviously, there's only so many things that we can cover. But like some of the things that you mentioned here were just fascinating like my mind is kind of blown so thank you so much this was really an amazing discussion and um yeah please just uh, let people know for now where they can find you and maybe you could also mention a couple of resources if people want to educate themselves more about these topics sure so i am very occasionally on social media my handle i think is at gdm potter gregory david maxwell potter and I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is often me sharing some of the podcasts that I'm on and that type of thing. Twitter is more often me sharing the work of others that I find particularly interesting. It's probably slightly more academic. I'm also on ResearchGate if you want to check out my scientific publications. But then otherwise, I don't have my own website. I did used to work for a company named humanos.me. And if you go to their blog, then you can find many blogs that I've written about some of the things that we've discussed today. I suppose that the last blog that I wrote that was published on their site was probably around February or March of this year, but there are maybe 20 to 40 blogs that I've written over time there. And then some other resources that people might find helpful. I don't feel like there's one website where people can go to get a really deep understanding of sleep necessarily but what i'll say is if you think you might have a sleep disorder then you want to track down an aasm accredited sleep facility if you're in the us i'm assuming that many of the listeners will be in the us and go and see somebody about your particular difficulties otherwise the national sleep foundation website has a lot of good material on it Sleepio for people who have insomnia is a very useful resource. I focus on insomnia because it's the most common sleep disorder. Then there are some good podcasts out there. There's a podcast named Sleep Junkies that I really like, and that should get people going. There are a couple of books too. I think that Every Man and His Dog has probably read Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker by now, which is an interesting book, and lots of people really like that. And then there's also a book that I like named Internal Time, by Till Roneberg, which is more about chronobiology. And I just think it's written in a fun and engaging way. It's not so much this study found this. It doesn't read as if I'm speaking. It's not rattling off a list of numbers or anything. It's more delivered as a series of anecdotes or allegories. And that is a useful book for many people too, I think. So hopefully people gain something from checking out those resources. Absolutely. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time today. Great discussion. And yeah, I hope to interact with you again in the future. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, then please, once again, consider dropping a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it would be truly helpful. And if you're interested in more cool stuff, then you could visit my YouTube channel. If you type in Sustainable Self-Development Podcast there or even SSD Podcast, it will come up. And if you're interested in working together with me, then you can always visit SustainableSelfDevelopment.com and you can book a free call with me. We can hop on a call, chat and talk about 
about your fitness goals, challenges, and we'll see if we are a good fit. So if that sounds interesting to you, then head over to sustainableselfdevelopment.com once again. So that's all I had to say for today. I hope to see you soon. And with that, have a good one.